0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. It's good to see you. You're kind of average today, though, I got to say, you know. So listen, if you are here on our campus in the big room or you're joining us online, I wanna say welcome or welcome back, whatever most applies to you. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. I serve Sundridge as a lead pastor. And um, I realize that in a service like this, there's often people that don't go to church, uh, you know, or maybe you're new to church. So I, I wanna tell you what you can expect here over the next uh, four and a half hours is that um, I'm going to teach the Bible, I'm going to go through a section of Scripture, and then at the end I'm going to kind of turn it, and we're going to talk about how that can roll up into our lives today. And then we're going to sing a couple more songs. We call it worship, and I know that that makes some people feel uncomfortable. We don't mean to make you feel uncomfortable. If you don't want to sing, just sit back and listen to the words and enjoy the music because we have a fabulous band. They do such a great job. Before I get into the message today, I, I have a confession to make that um, last week in my sermon I misspoke, and I know that's amazing to a lot of you that that could happen. But uh, I said that James, the brother of John, that um, that was martyred, uh, was the author of James, and I got that wrong. And. Uh, it was right there in the passage. I don't know how I said it. I totally messed it up. I just want to tell that to you. So if you didn't catch that, that's okay. For those of you that did, that did catch it and you said, ah, I'm going to cut the guy some slack. You know, he was a fireman. Maybe he doesn't have all his brain cells in action. And uh, so thank you for being so gracious. And to one of my dear friends who, who pointed it out to me in such a gracious way, I just have to say thank you to to that person as well. So thank you all. I'm just so grateful that whether you caught it or you didn't, you know, appreciate you cutting me some slack every once in a while. I also want to let you know that next Sunday, we're going to like just take a break from the teaching of Scripture. And instead, I want to share with you a life. And a former pastor that used to be here at Sunridge named Mel Grams is going to be here. And uh, those of you who have been at Sunders for a very long time, you know him. Uh, he uh, is 92. And, you know, every person, no matter what you do, the job that you have or industry you're in, you have kind of like people that you, you really admire, that you emulate. Uh, you, you, seek, you really want to emulate. And Mel is one of my heroes. And so next Sunday, I want to interview him. Uh, he has spent decades in ministry. He is still preaching at 92. And uh, I want him to tell his story because in the last year, he's lost his wife of over 70 years, Verna. And, um, you know, a lot has happened in Mel's life. And I think that, you know, his story is part of the Acts story in a way. And he's he's been so faithful. And I want those of you that don't know him, I want you to get to know him he, I'm going to ask him about life and uh, our modern day, and uh, you know, a few other questions. So it's going to be amazing. I hope you come, and I hope you bring your friends. And if you know someone that, that knows Mel uh, and they, you think that they'd like to see him again, he's going to be here, so invite them. So on to our message today. According to Barna Research, uh, only 17% of people who call themselves Christians have heard of the Great Commission and know what that term means. And if you look at this chart, you can see that uh, 51% of people who attend Christian churches say they've never heard of the Great Commission, and then 25% say that they've heard of it, but they can't exactly recall what it means. So um, if you're part of that 76%, this is not a quiz. We're not going to have you stand up or raise your hand. Uh, the Great Commission is something that Jesus said to his disciples before he returned to heaven after his resurrection. And it's recorded uh, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And this is from the New uh, Living Translation. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. So that's the Great Commission. And the reason why it's called a commission is that it's, it's taken sort of like something that a superior officer would direct someone to do, a command, and with it, there's complete approval and support of, you know, endeavoring to accomplish that. So if only 17% of us who attend Christian churches are aware of this and know what it means, then it appears to me that perhaps the Great Commission has become the Great Omission. And so we need to put the C back on it. And as you know, that we've been studying through this book called The Acts, which is the first 30 years or so history of the early church. And we've said it's not just a historical book, but it's it's not just history, it's also our story. And when Saul, uh, which Jed inter- introduced us uh, to, and uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, um, when he converted to Christianity, he took the Great Commission very seriously. And in his brief life following his conversion, he sets out on three missionary journeys. And we're going to cover the first one today. And so, I want to let you know, we're going to cover a lot of ground. This is going to be like a drone flyover of Acts chapters 13 and 14, and at the end, as I said, we're going to roll it up and say, what does this mean to us today? Are you guys ready? Okay, good. And I need to tell you, here's a little nerd alert, okay? I have visuals, which uh, means maps, So. Our slide person is going to be amazing today at clicking through these maps. And the reason why I'm doing this is I'm not trying to give you a geography lesson. But it helps so much when you hear these places in the Bible to know what they mean, if I, which are foreign to most of us. If I say to you, you know, I flew to Denver last week, you know where Denver is. You, you got it, you know. Um, and so I just want you to see how Paul and his companions travel On this journey. So they start out from Antioch, which is in Syria. And as Tara just read, we see this church in Antioch emerging as a a major influence in the first century. They are ascending church. And the Holy Holy Spirit nudges them, Luke tells us, to send Barnabas and Paul out on this journey. Luke doesn't tell us like, like here's the plan you know, here's their itinerary, this is where we're going to go. All he says is, the Holy Spirit tells the church, these men have work to do that I've called them to accomplish. And then in commissioning them and affirming them, they lay hands on them, they pray, and they fast. And that first leg of their journey takes them to Seleucia, which is a port city just southwest of Antioch in, um, in Syria. And along with them, Luke tells us, is you know Barnabas Paul, and then there's a man named John Mark. And I want you to remember that name, because he's going to be part of the story as we go forward. And in, um, from Seleucia, they, they travel to Salamis, which is on the Isle of Cyprus. And they're on the east side um, and in Salamis, Paul and Barnabas go to these Jew- Jewish synagogues, and they speak about Jesus. And going to synagogues as they go to these individual towns becomes part of the general strategy. One, because that is the religious center, and they're going to be talking about religion, right? But also, uh, in many cases, the synagogue, because they had a place to gather in a, in a like, kind of like an educational format, uh, they became kind of like the town center where people would go and, and share ideas and, and talk about different things. There's no TV, there's no internet, uh, you know, and there just aren't that many gathering places, so it's like a public square. They go to the synagogue and they share the gospel, but the real opportunity happens outside of the gospel. As they travel west across uh, the aisle, uh, the island of Cyprus, they land in Paphos. And Luke tells us that um, there they, enc- um, they encounter two people. One is named Barjesus, which, is, which means son of Joshua. And he's also called Elimus, which means sorcerer. And he, this Elimus, he, he works for who Luke calls the proconsul of um, Paphos. And that's just a wealthy governmental official. And his name, this is the second person they encounter, Sergius Paulus. And he's a governor or some official position in that city. So these two, you know, um, Elimus works for Sergius, but they couldn't have had a, different, a more different response to the gospel. In verse 8 of chapter 13, Elimus opposed them, and he, tried to ter- and he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So he doesn't just reject the message of the gospel, but he's also antagonistic to it. And oftentimes, you know, as a Christian, I don't, I don't always get that. Like if someone is genuine, genuinely Christ-like, you know, sometimes there are people that they don't, it isn't that they just don't want to believe. They want to stand in opposition to it. And that's sad. But in direct contrast, in verse 12, the proconsul, Sergius, believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And for me, you know, when I think about this modern day, you know, there are a lot of uh, very powerful people in the world, some corrupt, some amazing, and our world is very polarized in so many different ways, And uh, but Sergius is a great example, a reminder, I guess, to us that no one is beyond God's grace. And we can't just prejudge, you know, how they're going to respond to, you know, Christ exemplified in a life, and Christ actually shared. And uh, so I think it's really important for us to think about that, the way we talk about people and the way that we treat people, that we, we can't put people beyond God's grace, no matter how difficult they may appear. Now, from uh, because I want to tell you, like, remember, I've told this story before many times. Like, I was one of the unlikely ones. I was the person that they said... That guy will never become a Christian, and I know some of you still doubt it, but um, I indeed am a Christian as far as I know. So, Now, from Paphos, they sail to Perga, which is in Pamphylia. It's in uh, chapter 13, verse 13, which is, this is part of modern Turkey as you look at the map, and Luke notes only one significant thing that happens here in Perga. It's in verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia Where John left them, remember I told you, remember that name, John Mark, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now Luke doesn't tell us why he left. Maybe it was too much pressure traveling uh, this way. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe as a devout Jew, it was just too many Gentiles for him to deal with. But when when Luke says um, he left, that word is deserted. And um, that's going to play into relationships in the future. In fact, I'm going to spend um, one message just on the conflict that this, this generates between people in the Bible. Now, from Perga, they go by land to Antioch. Now, this is a different Antioch. And so if look at the map. You see the red uh, square, which I would just want to say Danny Sugimoto Thank you for making all these maps for me and dialing, dialing me in. I'd be having, uh, you know, a film strip and an overhead projector if it was up to me. And then you see, But then you see in the bottom right, kind of, there's the Antioch from which they started. So there's two Antiochs. This, is, this one's in kind of like the, the region of Galatia. And there again, they go to the synagogue. and They're invited to speak. And it was a, it was customary at that time when you had these visiting rabbis or religious figures, they were invited to uh, give a fresh word or to exhort the the Jews that are there in synagogue and in verse fifteen, after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation, exhortation for the people, please speak and then there In some way, there are both Jews and Gentiles in this gathering. It's gathering kind of like interest. Again, kind of a public square situation. And in verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And here, Luke unpacks his message, which is consistent with how we've seen um, Peter and Stephen give the gospel to people who came from a Jewish tradition. And his, his message, as, as it has every time in Acts, emphasizes how Christianity is not a new religion, or it is not a corrupted religion that threatens Judaism. It is the fulfillment of the promises of God to the Jewish people. And it's been true thus far, and is true today, responses vary to this. Some reject their message, some are willing to explore, though, in verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And Luke even says some of the Jewish leaders are interested in their message. So I just want to stop here and say, first of all, are you guys still with me? Okay, um, these responses people have different responses to the gospel maybe you're sitting in church today you're watching online and you're saying you know i don't get the whole god thing i'm i'm just i don't understand all the pieces you know we we move forward this way at our own pace and maybe you have someone in your life that is sharing the gospel with you or talking to you it's like it's a personal decision and we never want to, like, just twist somebody's arm into believing because that never lasts. It doesn't, it doesn't work, whether they're your husband or your wife or a child. or It's like we respond to what God is doing in our hearts in response to the gospel, which doesn't eliminate our responsibility here, our people sharing the gospel. But just note that people are having different responses then, just as they do today. A week passes that they're there, and um, this word is spreading. They're, it's kind of building in popularity. And in verse 44, almost the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. But like Peter and Stephen before, when they preached the gospel to the Jews, when, in verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, that it, when it says Jews, that's not just a religion. It's like the, the official leaders of Judaism they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on them. Now, oftentimes, rejection of God comes down to control. Because being a Christian isn't just like checking a box and something that you believe or confess. It's a relinquishing of our will to God's will. That, that is the truth about being a Christian. That I'm not in control, but God is in control, and I follow his ways, or I, I, I intend to. Um, but they, because they don't, they want, that, they don't want that, and, and they, they want to control, one of the best ways to deflect it is to label. To heap abuse, which means to insult and to curse them. And then they take it a step further. They, they threaten their lives and they run them out of town. So in verse 51, so they, Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust off their feet, which is a, a way of saying it's symbolic of we release our responsibility to you. We have, we have done our job. And as a warning to them, and they go to Iconium, and as the disciples were, and all the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And what I love here is that, one, they're able to, like, give the results of what's happening in human hearts to God. And on the other hand, they have such an indomitable spirit that for them to have faced this kind of abuse and then to be filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, it's really remarkable. Now, from Antioch, they traveled down to Iconium, and this starts in chapter 14. In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas repeat their strategy again of going to the synagogue first, and Luke says that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed, but there's a plot to persecute them. In verse 6, when they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe, but they found out about this uh, attempt to persecute them, and so they flee to these cities, Lystra and Derby. So sometimes it's okay to run and, f- and fight another day, right? It's okay. So there's a little note here that I'm just going to take a little sidebar here. Uh, this verse, Acts 14, 6, is really significant in ways that most of us would not know. Maybe you've heard of Sir William Ramsey. Before, that's Sir Bill right there, and he uh, he was a Scottish archaeologist, and he he lived from one thousand, eight hundred and fifty-one. He died in one thousand, nine hundred and thirty-nine, and he was the foremost authority on the history of Asia Minor, and he was a leading scholar in his day in the study of the New Testament, and he at that time embraced what the general concept was that. Archaeology proved that the New Testament was unreliable. And in particular, Luke's record in Acts was unreliable. And specifically in Acts, the way Luke described Paul's journeys was a problem at that time. But this verse ends up making a dramatic difference in the trajectory of. Uh, Dr. Ramsey's life, and it brings him to a point where he completely believes in the reliability of the New Testament. And here's how. Um, if we could put the map back up, I want you to notice that you see Lystra and Derby on the map. And Paul says, or, or uh, Luke says, that these two cities were part of Lyconia. But the, but the understanding at that time is that these two cities uh, were in different regions. So when Luke puts Lystra and Derby in the same province, Lyconia, the belief at that time is that Luke is wrong. And so his book and his writings are completely unreliable. That's the common belief of scholars in that day. But what's interesting here, as Ramsey goes there to do his archaeological work, he discovers evidence that for a period of time, specific to this period, when Paul and his companions would be traveling, the cities of Lystra and Derby were, in fact, part of Lyconia. So am, am I, I'm totally nerding out here, right? Stick with me. So this fact, this is one of the things that causes Ramsey to conclude that Luke is right and that he is not just right, but he's a great historian. That in the, and I say, and this is, quote, that Luke was among the historians of the first rank. And this, um, this verse and what Ramsey discovered uh, brought him to the conclusion that Luke was one of the most reliable historians in all the world. And this verse was part of that discovery. And so Ramsey goes on uh, to become a foremost scholar of the New Testament, and his work is still relied upon and has yet to be uh, unproven. Now we can take that slide down. You guys okay? I like this stuff. So uh, they're going to go on to Derby, uh, but I want you to see why uh, they go there. While in Lystra, uh, which is mainly a Gentile demographic, Paul preaches the gospel in a very different way than he does to Jews. And we've pointed this out a couple of times in verse 17. He, he, God, has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, and he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So Paul's approach here is that not tying Christianity to Judaism, but he's tying it to the things that matter most, to the Gentiles. The things that you love and you value come from God. And he's, he's unpacking to them the way God's kindness provides them what they need. Food, weather, crops, joy. And they respond to it. But while that's happening, the Jews that have been kind of following him and his team and have been getting angry about, you know, their preaching, they show up in town And they whip the crowd up in opposition to this news about Jesus. And Paul is stoned, big rocks, and left for dead. They think he's dead. But in verse 20, after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up. He was only mostly dead. And he went back into the city. Amazing. Amazing. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. That's how they end up going to Derby. And they preach the gospel in that city, and Luke says they won a large number of disciples. I just love that. Not, I mean, we don't know, was Paul dead? Did he look dead? Did God resurrect him? Luke, Luke doesn't say, but he's right back at it. Just remarkable. And uh, you can see that on this trip, they're reaching both the traditionally religious and people that have no religion or maybe a complete pagan lifestyle. And then from Derby they set out on a return trip. So they're going to flip around and their first main leg takes them back to Perga and Italia and uh, you can see how they travel from Derby back uh, to that region there. And as they're backtracking uh, they're they're doing things, they're tying in with different cities that they've been in believers. And uh, from Italia, they take their final leg uh, over, uh, and it's kind of like a nonstop. Could we get to that slide, too? You can see that they go from there all the way back. That's a nonstop flight. You know, That's what you really want when you're heading home, right? And on that trip, uh, they're doing things that are just as strategic as their first on their return trip. They're doing things just as strategic as on the first way through. Verse 22 of Luke 14, Luke says that they were strengthening the disciples as they came back through, and they were encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And they tell them, you know, we're going to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And then Paul and Barnabas appoint elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting, commit them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So Paul and Barnabas, as they come back through, what are they doing to these people that first believed in these different cities? They are strengthening them. They're encouraging them. They're telling them this is not going to be an easy life in this day and time that they lived. And they're establishing leadership. Luke calls them elders. And how important is it for a a church to have that leadership structure? And on that, um, you know, they go through this last leg back. Home And from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. So now they're back home. Um, and, you know, sometimes you just want to get home, right? And it feels so good to be there. And then Luke tells us how good it was for them to get back home. In verse 27, On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how He had opened the door of faith The Gentiles. So then, after all the physical and emotional and spiritual rigors of this trip, they stay there a while and they're refreshed. Verse twenty-eight, and they stayed there a long time with disciples. We made it back. You still with me? Okay. Big long missionary trip. How? I mean, what do you say about this? It's an amazing trip. These these are remarkable people adventuresome spirit, determination, fearless. Well, to wrap it up and to bring it back to where we are today, I want to I take you back to where we started. In Acts 13, 2, while this church in Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them And they sent them off. Now when I look at this beginning couple of verses that we started with, it strikes me that while they're worshiping God together as believers, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. And what does he say to that church? The Spirit says to that church, there's work that needs to be done. And that work is part of Jesus' mission. People need to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that mission goes right back to the Great Commission that we talked about in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've told you. This is a good reminder for every church, first century or modern That the mission of the church is to help people find and follow Jesus. That's the mission that God has given us. And that means, and this is the main thought for this entire passage, that you are a missionary. You are a missionary. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that God is calling you to get on planes, trains, and automobiles and go to the deepest, darkest regions of the world. And when I say that, you should just insert the most scariest place that you could ever imagine and the people that you would least want to be with to reach people that don't know the gospel and that you cannot relate to today. Is that what God wants? Is that what it means to be a missionary? Well, maybe for some of you, but probably not most of you. The reason why I say that we need to be reminded about the mission of the church is that if you've been in church for a while, you know how easy it is to forget the mission. And maybe you found yourself forgetting on occasion what church is all about. I know that I do. And I'm the pastor here. Because it's pretty easy to get distracted from this mission to be focused on other details, and details are important. The things that are important to us, the things that we do, cultural concerns, and of course, the main distraction for most of us is often ourselves, which is why we say here, probably too much to you, is we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And we've said that Acts is not just history, it is our story, it's our story. And this singular focus of our spiritual relatives really strikes me. Sometimes we talk about how hard it is to be a Christian today, but how many obstacles did they face as they took the gospel to these different cities? There's no planes. They walk. They have to take camels, maybe, sail in janky boats. There's no air conditioning in the synagogues. There's no Hyatts to stay in on their travel. And no one is keeping the light on for them, which I know I just mixed my hotel metaphors. I'm aware of that. I wonder, though, how the church's impact would change in the world if we remembered often that we are here to help people find and follow Jesus. And in doing so, each of us is a missionary if we were single focused on that, that doesn't mean that other things don't matter. But if that was our primary focus, if everything we did in the church from our teaching to our ministries, to worship, to our life groups, to Bible studies, to tech, to facilities, to security team that all of us had this single focus, but not just in church, but outside the church, in our worlds. If we had that kind of a focus, anticipating when we wake up, God, what do you have for me today? How am I going to have an opportunity to to demonstrate the gospel or to share the gospel with someone? Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, and I know that you guys already know that about me. But when I think about being focused on a mission, I think about football. So bear with me. If you're tired of my sports analogies, send your emails to Jed and <laughs> But any sport applies. Like, why do you play? Why do you play the games? Fun. To win. What? To fun? No, it's not fun. <laughs> it's fun, win. To win! Maybe I'm giving your kids bad mentoring right now. But, you know, like I played football from times of peewee through college. And, you know, you we were always working on it. It's like, but we weren't just strength training when we lifted weights. We weren't just doing tackling drills or driving a sled or running past patterns. They all were steps toward a main goal. And it wasn't so that one of us could get our name in the paper, which was obviously a benefit or signed with the University of Miami, or the NFL, or that we would have the coolest uniforms and the best stadium, or so that, you know, so that one of us could capture the biggest uh, name, image, and likeness agreement either. We did everything to win games. That's why we played. So what does that mean for you and me? Where do we fit in? As a Christian, in 2022, in the Temecula Valley, what's the win for you? As I said at the beginning, this doesn't have to mean that I'm sent overseas to do things I hate and give up my job. Probably not. But if I'm a missionary, here's what it means. God has work for each of us to do. Again, look at how it all started. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And then they prayed, and they sent them off. There was something for everyone to do. In the Christian world, we call that a calling. What was Paul and Barnabas's work? They were sent. What about the others? They were sending, fasting, praying, not stated but obvious funding. The prophets and teachers stayed there doing what they did, and supported Paul and Barnabas on this trip. And the truth is, Christian, we are either being sent or sending when it comes to the mission. So there are two questions we need to ask ourselves when it comes to this. Number one, are you meant to be sent? Each of us is being sent somewhere every day. Today, you're being sent. When you leave this campus, you're going somewhere, and you are being sent by Jesus, and in a way, Sunridge, to wherever you're going. You might be going home. You're not going to Lystra or Antioch. I know that. But you could go home. You might be going to work, to school, to a community event. You might be going on vacation, and that is an opportunity in which you're being sent. Does that mean that wherever you go, you stand up and preach a sermon? Maybe, but probably not. And by the way, people don't want to be our religious projects, right? It just comes down to us being with people who are far from God, to love them like Jesus did, and to say something about what Jesus has done in our life when God gives us an opportunity Simply, simply put, to be a light in the world. And some of you might be saying, well, man, that's all I know is Christians. That's a problem. Well, everyone in this valley is already a Christian. No, they're not. And you know, more than ever, there is mass confusion about what it means to be a Christian in the world. So, you and me, we are missionaries. But as God has called us, you might be sent. The other question you need to ask yourself is Are you meant to send? What did it mean here to be sent? To pray, to fast, to fund, to encourage, to help. And I put et cetera in your notes because this reminds me of every job description that I ever was a part of in the fire department. It always listed your jobs. And then at the end, it would say, and other duties as assigned. <laughs> Anybody have that in your job description? You know what that means? This is your job and anything else that they tell you to do, right? You know, the ways we can send, they're unlimited. They're only, they're only limited by our own imagination and willingness to engage in what God is doing in the world. And if you're, if you're a sender, If you're meant to send, I want you to get this. I just want it to, like, if nothing else lands on you, get this. Senders are not second tier. This is not like an also ran, to be a sender. When Cindy and I first got married, I worked for this Dutch home builder. His name was Woody Witteveen. And uh, Woody, what a great name for a carpenter. And uh, he was the fussiest builder, I think, in the world. He would throw boards back at you if they were an eighth inch off. He was so fussy. And he taught me how to build a home. And like, what? there were days on the job where I thought, I'm hammering this nail. What am I doing? Am I pounding a nail? Or am I building a home? It changes your perspective, right? If you're just hammering a nail, then that's all you're doing. Your, Your scope is limited. But when you step back and see what you're doing is actually building a home. Are you getting my metaphor about sending? It's like this little thing that we do that's part of what God is doing in the world. It's not just that thing. We are part of something way bigger. I want to have the band come up now, and I want to show you how Paul is so logical about this idea about being sent or sending. In Romans uh, 10, verses 14 and 15, he says, how then... Can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them, sent? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? see, there are sent ones and those who send them. No one gets to hear unless somebody sends them. So if you're teaching kids in Sunday school, if you're making my sermon sound amazing at that sound booth right now, um, if, you're, if you're holding babies, if you're sitting with a small group of middle schoolers, if you've been greeting people and their kids as they've come in and checked them in, when you go out to your job tomorrow or whenever, wherever you work, like you are part of what God is doing. You are, you are either sending or being sent. And by the way, one of the greatest ways that you can be a sender right now, I'm just going to like lay it out to you. The most influential ministry over the years at this church has been our mothers of preschoolers, MOPs. We have anywhere from 60 to 100 moms who are willing to pay and commit to come to this campus twice a month to be encouraged with other moms. And we have... have, Moms of preschoolers who are willing to lead a table and to organize everything and to oversee everything that goes on with this, and then we have mentor moms who are willing to sit with those moms and share their wisdom and their experiences, and it is unlimited. You know, the thing that limits MOPS is childcare. It is every time. It's not. We're never short on. A, when moms that want to come, we're never short on moms that want to sit at those tables and be a part of encouraging other moms, and we're never short on uh, mentor moms, older moms that are seasoned and have done motherhood and can be an example and a blessing to them. We're always limited by child care, and I just want to put that on your radar. Um, that will be the limiting factor this year. If, you, if you're off during the day and you say, you know, I want to be a sender, This is one way you can do it. And Haley and others will be out in the main hallway to talk to you about that. Because on any given day, you could be sent. Or you could be sending on any given day. Because the Holy Spirit in the first century said something to the church. And I think the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church today. So I want you to, this is the end of my sermon. um, I want you to do this little exercise with me. The, in the, the last fill-in on your notes is, set apart for me, and it was Paul and Barnabas, for the work to which I've called them. Put your name in there. Write your name and think about how God is sending you or you're a part of sending others. And ask yourself, what can I do tomorrow to be a sent one And what can I do tomorrow to be one who is sending others? Because you are a missionary. Let's stand and worship. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.